0: Dear Heavenly Father, we celebrate this morning the work of your hands. We read of the work of your hands from the day time began as the universe, Lord. A product of the handiwork of your fingertips was spoken and formed by the power of your almighty hand. We think of your strong arm, not too short to save, your mighty hand that intervened for your will and purposes for Your people all through Your covenant history. We think of the hand of our Savior Jesus Christ who to this day, the scars are the evidence that our sins have been atoned for. And now as we think of Him ruling and reigning our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father, we celebrate the works of our Almighty God whose handiwork is responsible For bringing us here safely this morning. For painting a beautiful sunrise in the morning. And a sunset in the evening. For speaking into being the world that we enjoy. For letting a few of the snowflakes and the immeasurable storehouses fall on us. bringing that beautiful metaphor of redemption today. It is the hand of our God that is responsible for our well-being. And in You, we live and move and have our being. And every single breath that You give us that fills our lungs would not be available were it not for Your divine care, Your providence, Your work, intervening into the affairs of our life, revealing Yourself, Lord, by sustaining our lives, and by granting us, by the grace of Jesus Christ, whose death atoned for our sin, eternal life, and that more abundantly. And the Holy Spirit, now as we endeavor to be faithful, to live up by the standard of our works in increasing measure to the calling of our great hope and testimony of our great faith, I pray that Your Word would have a miraculous effect as it's brought, Lord, from the pulpit today. Not because of the servant that brings it, but because of that intangible and amazing work where You make it alive and quick and powerful, able to discern deep within the soul and able to change us and transform us into the image of our Lord and Savior. Thank You for this time. We pray that it would be fruitful for Your glory. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. The title of this morning's message is Rock and Redeemer. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. One of my favorites, Psalm 19 declares the glory of God in creation, and the glory of God in His revealed will through His law. His principles, His precepts, His directives, the standards of holiness that He has revealed from cover to cover, the ones that are commanded in the old, fulfilled in Christ, and now become the vision for our own sanctification. This psalm is unique in some ways, especially when we take it as a body of thought and then compare it to anything that might appear to accomplish the same ends in modern literature. Modern literature will always fall short of achieving what the psalmist has accomplished in just 14 verses, which is the philosophical endeavor that is poetically visible before us in this psalm to reconcile the God of nature with the God of morality in a way that brings together the immutability and the necessary cause of God, as we see evidence in nature, our rock, And then the relational and the moral imperative and the rules and the imbuing of the very nature and character of God into the heart and soul of man as represented by the word Redeemer. I would submit to you in my brief knowledge and overview of philosophy as I have studied some, even in secular philosophy, in recent days, there are troubling thoughts that man will wrestle with for the end of time and never find resolution until he takes the Word of God as authoritative and finds only within within the pages of Holy Writ, God's Scripture, where the God of nature and the God of morality is reconciled, ultimately, in the work of Jesus Christ, which shows how we can be both redeemed and justified by his grace and mercy, and still have our sins that are an egregious offense to his holiness atoned for. So, with that overview in mind, and brief note of biblical and theological and philosophical context, let's read this chapter, starting verse 1 all the way through to verse 14. This is Psalm 19, and the title is To the Choir Master, A Psalm of David. We read in verse 1. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Then in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Finally, verse 14 Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That final phrase doubles as a title for our message this morning My Rock and My Redeemer. Rock and Redeemer. The immutable and the relational come together in 14 verses in a picture that's powerful and should affect our soul and shake the very foundations of our preconceived notions and rush inside of us as the Spirit opens the crevices of our hard heart, the revelation that we can be saved by an almighty, holy, pure, and true God if we can be judged somehow by His grace blameless, innocent of transgression, and only then will we be set free so that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart might be now acceptable in His sight. I'd like to open with an example, an illustration, a picture for you. There's a fascinating piece of archaeology, and you might be familiar with it. Pardon me if I slaughter its label. It's Antikythera. Antikythera Mechanism, I think that's how you pronounce it. Has anyone ever heard of the Antikythera Mechanism? All right, I'll explain. (laughs) It's a piece of machinery that was found in 1900 from a shipwreck that they figure was a Roman ship full of loot that was confiscated from some Greek city. And it was clear that this thing was an anomaly from the moment it was discovered that it contained something like 30 bronze gears, just a little bit over a millimeter thick, arranged in a very orderly way. It's taken about 100 years of diligent investigation, multiple 3D x-rays, people that are skilled watchmakers, engineers. The best technology that we can assemble in analysis has been applied now to this machine, and only in about 2006 or 2007 were we able, through computer-generated imagery and the like, able to reproduce a working model of this B.C., dated, they figure about 87 B.C., analog computer. It's amazing to some degree as far as it goes. Like I said, there's bronze gearing mechanisms. I am told that there's uh, the kind of technology that was employed to make this thing that's apparent to us now as we've uncovered and investigated how it exactly worked, did not reappear in the knowledge, common knowledge of mankind in our own machinery for 1,400 years or so. By the time the late Middle Ages came around, we had clocks whose mechanism is actually parallel with this particular device, this computer that was found in 1900, but predates us, or predates its uh, technological equivalent by uh, almost a millennia and a half. As I was doing a little research on this particular item, it was apparent that it had absolutely gripped and fascinated the minds of engineers, archaeologists, uh, maybe some sociologists and historians alike, because it was so out of the ordinary. How in the world could ancient man have been able to come up with something so intricate, complicated, such a device. When you turn the dial, it would not only tell you the calendar date, but the position of five planets very likely, uh, when the next Olympic Games would come up, the cycle and phase of the moon, an 18-year chronicle of when to expect the next solar and lunar eclipse. There are about six or seven different celestial events, and positions of bodies within the heavens that were predicted just by turning the dial. And then the gears would turn, and there's kind of like a, a meter and pointed you know uh, indicators that would tell you how all of these events were coordinated. In short, it appears that the Antikythera antiquith, <laughs> mechanism was designed to replicate the regularity of momentary situational interaction between several celestial patterns, like the ones I mentioned, planetary, solar, lunar motion, eclipses, and calendar dates. But the more I studied about this mechanism, and the more I held my own fascination accountable to the message of Psalm 19, I began to realize a stark and indicting irony As I considered why man would look so deeply and be so fascinated at what that particular device meant. And suddenly I realized that the elephant in the room, no, indeed the elephant in the cosmos, was the very fact that we would have no idea how that device worked or that it predicted anything. If we didn't have the same regularity, the same amazing predictability of the sun's rising and the sun's setting, the position, the situational interaction of every celestial orb in the entire universe that had been spoken into being by the word of God's almighty power and held there in their accurate trajectories, positioning, orbits, gravitational pulls, interactions, solar eclipses, And everything since the beginning of time, according to His command, the obedience of the cosmos according to the ordination of God, is such that now, 2,000 years later, after a device was discovered, that simply tried to make gears replicate the regularity of one aspect of just about five or six of those heavenly bodies is now apparent to us. In other words, we could be fascinated, we could be impressed, If man could come up with a gearing mechanism that could replicate not just the regularity of the situational position of heavenly bodies, but every aspect of their interaction in their innumerable number in relationship and gravitational pull in physics, all the universe over, and we can't even count the stars. We're fascinated that ancient man was able to come up with a few gears and dials. But are we more fascinated at the creator of the universe who set the entire world into motion. And if its movements weren't predictable, we wouldn't even be able to understand that device in the first place. Do we look at archaeology, the things that man has made? Do we look at the what we can accomplish? Do we marvel at technology and say, surely computers declare the glory of man. Surely his cities show his handiwork. Surely it's unprecedented. Precedented, or do we look at the heavens, the very various celestial bodies whose order and design was spoken since the beginning of time by the word of God's power and dutifully follows His command, and say the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Show me a device that can replicate all those interacting elements. Show me a device that can explain where every star is situated in the heavenlies. Show me a measuring stick that's able to calculate the volume of the universe. Show me a device, a spaceship, a telescope, an interplanetary mechanism, a satellite that's able to explore the furthest reaches. The best we can do is look a little farther, which tells us how much more we have to explore. And yet our God has numbered every star and placed it in its accurate position and ordained the principles and the laws of nature by which it dutifully and obediently follows His every will and command until such time as He wraps up space and time and declares the next dispensation of His glory in the new heavens and the new earth. If we don't look up at the sky at night and partake partake in the glory of God and behold His handiwork, to greater degree than we appreciate the primitive, ridiculous, sandbox to skyscraper proportion technology, and even that is infinitely less to describe how crude and grossly horrible our standards of measurement and our means of understanding are compared to the holy, omnipotent God. If we don't know that, then we must repent. If it does not occur to us we need to read Psalm 19 for the intent we are to glean as we read in these pages that day unto day pours out speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There is no mechanism. There is no telescope. There is no theory. There is no understanding of man. There are no words that can compare to that speech, that power, that order, that divine ability that we see before us every day. When the sun rises and the sun sets and every single plant and living organism and human being and creature that's ever been created is the beneficiary of its heat. And if that fuel source was lost on this world, we would become iced over and lose our life in an instant. Yet God, by the word of His power, keeps that ore burning, sets us at just the right distance, calibrated by the distance as I imagine from his thumb and forefinger, exactly where the world needs to be to sustain thriving conditions for life. And we think we're awesome because we can approximate the mileage by some calculation that we use other standards of God's distance to judge anyway. I want to give you six points of poetic progression. Six points as David builds his poetic, reasoned, philosophical, powerful case for the glory of God. He begins with the created order of matter. In Genesis 1, 14-19, we see that David is recognizing something that God had already recorded through his servant Moses' recordation of creation itself. He had already ordained from the first day of creation. God said in Genesis 1, 14, "...let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night." and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Again we read, a reiteration of God's purposes in the order of creation, even as seed time and harvest are referred to God's seasons, the rise and setting of the sun is now pictured here in God's seasons that He ordains in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. Verse 21, we read, And when God smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down the living creatures as I have done. Verse 22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And because God has faithfully, by a providential power of His hand, kept His covenant with matter itself, because day and night have not ceased, and seasons have continually, regularly followed His will and command, the ultimate standard of tangible order and time that we retain to this day is indeed the obedience of matter to His command. The created order of matter is so precise so regular and bows before the Lordship of Jesus Christ to such high degree that since we have begun to build mechanisms like the one I described earlier in clocks of even today, we set them and calibrate them according to God's standards for time, regularity, seasons, night, day, calendar, celestial events, orbits of planets, and so on. In the past, we used things like the huge events, the grander ones, the ones we see above us, the suns and the seasons and the eclipses and the years, to measure our clocks by, and only in recent years has the standard now been smaller. Atoms, the half-life of particles, as I read, I don't quite understand, but as particles decay, even in its decay, and even if in its changing form, matter is so precise, so predictable, so obedient to God's command, that whether it's the orbit of the electrons around the nucleus of the atom, or the orbits of planets around the gravitational pull of the sun, that we have nothing more precise, nothing more regular to measure time by. It is the standard that man will always use until the end of time. Why? Why? because the created order of matter reflects the perfection of our God. And even though this world is condemned and cursed by sin, He has retained an image of His character, even in the order of matter, such that after the flood, that secondary judgment for sin, God has ordained a regularity to times, seasons, day, nightfall. You can set your clock by it. It is a standard. That's where David begins in declaring the glory of God. He says in Psalm 19, 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day, notice the progression, notice the repetition, day to day pours out speech. There is a sermon that is given every morning when the sun rises. There is an altar call given every evening when it sets. Look and behold the power and glory of Almighty God. And let your knees bow before His glory revealed as day to day preaches to you that there is a hand whose orderly nature ordains every atom in this universe to line up with His will. Night to night, again the repetition, reveals His knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. I take that in verse 3 to tell us that this language is universal. This is something that as long as man has been aware, it has been part of his experience. And thus, as we read in correlating passages of Scripture, God indeed, in the evidence of His character revealed in just nature itself, has given us sufficient cause to judge us worthy of destruction if we should look at the world around according to Romans, the beginning of the book, and say there is no God. Creation and self testifies to his existence. If you look at the order of night unto night and day unto day, and think of David and the evidence of faith that he retained, even as he was able to study the heavens <clears throat> without so much as a telescope, I assume, or a radio telescope or the Hubble telescope or different satellite images. Now ask yourself, how much more are we accountable for the information that we can actually gather and glean and witness on multiple levels of technology to exponentially greater degree and yet what have we done we've used it as an excuse to deny him in the first place we've built the tower of babel even as we peruse the heavens with the best attempts at understanding not what god wants us to know but what we would prefer was the reality which is, I am my own God, I am unaccountable to Him, and in spite of the glorious order and precision that is evident, the farther we look to exponential degree, man is still scrambling, scratching, clawing the recesses of the universe, looking for an excuse to stay in sin. He will never find it. In fact, you are without excuse, the Bible says. And we will only have greater reason... "...to be held accountable before the Lordship and order of our God, the more we explore and the less we repent." David begins his poetic progression of the glory of the Lord by testifying to the order of matter itself. As we continue to read verse 4, "...the measuring line goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving the chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." And if we think of the motives of a bridegroom who has set his mind and intent and his will to accomplish something like apprehending his bride on that day, consummation of marriage, the image here is a poetic one that he is undeterred on his course. And he radiates the confidence and purpose and joy of his endeavor. How much more the sun, who rises at God's command with this kind of fervency day after day after day from eternity or from time beginning to time ending it rises from the end of the heaven its circuit is to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat second in the order of progression david's poetic progression as he builds a case for the glory of god he proclaims him in this section as the rock And he continues to proclaim him, as I take it in this section, as the rock as well. He is not only the immutable standard of order, as we see witnessed in matter itself, but he maintains and exerts and imposes an immutable standard of order in the conscience as well, in the spiritual realm, in the human heart. He is the rock of matter, and he is the rock of the soul second in progression, the created order of man. How was man designed? He was designed orderly as well, with a purpose, with a job description, with commandments, with a destiny. He was given a mandate, a dominion mandate, to steward as God's agent the things of this earth and matter itself to answer to His holy Creator and to show as a husbandman, as a steward of all creation, a good job and obedience to his faithful or to his master who had been so faithful to bless him with so much. Yet man has compromised, he's been derelict in his duty, he's rebelliously turned his back on God, and he is lost in his sin. But note by contrast the standard that he is called to live up to in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What is David saying here? I mentioned earlier, that David has taken on a task that is philosophical in nature. And Psalm 19 brings together what secular philosophy, man's wisdom, and our best attempts at grasping and ascertaining truth has been, as far as it tries to do it, independent of the Word of God ultimately, hesitant, fearful, ill-equipped, or loath to approach. Psalm 19 rushes there with a boldness. That is, Psalm 19 reconciles what we call in theological categories general revelation, the testimony of God in His creation, and special revelation, the testimony of God in His written Word. It brings them together seamlessly. It brings together the cosmos and the conscience. Immanuel Kant, an 18th century philosopher, was famously quoted as saying, two things... Fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. And more often, the more often and steadily we reflect on them. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Immanuel Kant, again, an 18th century philosopher, said something that was not original to him. This is right here within our text this morning. He said, Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the more often and steadily we reflect on them, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. This meditation was obviously not original to Kant. The philosopher-poet David had been meditating on the starry eyes above and the moral law within in the pages of Scripture thousands of years before this philosopher that we think of as preeminent and influential ever put pen to the paper. The only difference between the two, actually there might be an infinite difference between the two as we search the body of Kant's work, as David rushes boldly to reconcile the starry eyes above and the moral law within with more authoritative conclusiveness than Kant ever dared to postulate. If you get into Kant's material at all, his conclusion was ultimately that God can't be known in categories of pure reason and human knowledge. However, it's necessary that we must affirm that he exists and so on. So his ideas broke down and proved to be uninspired. He proved himself indeed not to be capable of the kind of thought that would have graced the canon itself, and no one will. It's closed. But he has indicted himself in the body of his thought. Nevertheless, he wrestled with a question that was a good one. He just didn't have the sufficient answer. How do I account for the starry heavens above? How do I account for the moral law within? Both demand that the God of Scripture is real. And both demand that mankind bow before His Lordship. And the starry heavens leave Him absolutely no excuse. And the moral law demands... How can we possibly reconcile them? In 14 verses, David has explained how. How can a rock and a redeemer be one and the same? There's shades of prophecy here. We know that they come together perfectly in Christ. But as we read here, we're inspired because the age-old questions were actually faithfully wrestled with long before Christ even came and David had enough of the revelation of God to tackle this philosophical problem with clarity, boldness, assurance, conviction, and authority. David, first in his progression, talks about the created order of matter. Secondly, he brings up the created order of man. And his conclusion, as I read in to the presuppositions of his thought, is as follows. If you manifestly awaken to the reality of law and order imposed on the cosmos you will necessarily realize creation ultimately, ontologically, that is, by by definition of its very being, it demands law and order in the whole being of man. Another way to put it a little more simply is if the heavens are so orderly, how in the world can we have any hope to be anything but judged eternal if we are disorderly. The heavens who have, to some measure, a lesser degree of duty to glorify the Lord, they're not moral agents, yet they're obedient to His command. How are we to see ourselves in light of the celestial obedience of the sun and the moon as we consider ourselves blind, often deaf, to the glory of God manifestly evident there. David says in his progression of thought, if that you if you awaken with true reality, true knowledge and awareness and wisdom to the law and order of the universe itself that must be present in order for that device we mentioned before to be able to be figured out some 1400 years after its discovery after its invention, if you awaken to the reality of what that order means, it places a demand that your life be at least as orderly. God demands law and order, not just for the sun and the moon and the stars, but He demands moral perfection of all of His creation. And this perfection that God demands is something that we ought to love embrace, celebrate, and it ought to be the thematic element of worship. When was the last su- last time you're tuning into a popular song on the radio, Christian song or what have you, was the law of God elevated in affectionate terms like David uses in Psalm 119 or in this passage, talking about the commandments, the precepts, the perfection of the holiness of God being perfect and actually reviving the soul, bringing it to life, and His testimony being sure, you can set your clock by it. You can set your moral measurements and compass and ethics and righteousness and wickedness. You can set all those things that are necessary for a society to exist. You can set them all by God's standard of order in His revealed law. Just as we can create clocks and use as their standard of measure the movements of heavenly bodies, So we can set our standards of righteousness, justice, law, ethics, morality. We can set them all by God's perfection and surety and righteousness and purity of his law, his testimony, his precepts and his commandments. Instead of being something that would be anathema to us, something that we would shun, avoid, deny, discourage, disparage or depress us, and we take them in the same way, in the same faith that David took them and inspired this song, they become something else. They become a reviving element of our souls. A reforming, resurrecting force by the hand of God to draw our attention through sanctification as we learn to obediently begin to embrace and redeem our calling and design. And suddenly, we get wisdom. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the very beginning. It's the point of synthesis for all knowledge, all wisdom. And as we see that God's standards and His measurements in nature and in morality are the very benchmark to set all things by, we begin to become wise. Not a wisdom that's of this world, but a wisdom that helps us discern this world and the situations and the problems that arise in our day-to-day course of life. They begin to rejoice our heart. As we, per, as we perceive God's order in the universe, and we see that it absolutely follows His will, commands, and decrees, then how much more faith does it give us for the course of history? That it will ultimately, according to His providence, according to His sovereignty, follow His will and decree. And suddenly our heart rejoices, because every event in this universe is following the ultimate command of our God with the precision of a well-tuned universe and will move according to His governance and intention towards the end that He is ultimately purposed, and this rejoices our heart. We become enduring in persecution. We become confident in the face of tyranny. When other thoughts seek to exalt themselves up above the knowledge and lordship of Jesus Christ, we can easily cast them down in our heart and in our minds and rejoice in our heart that if God be for us, nothing, no one, no idea, no power no government no principality can be against us the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes and as we begin to peruse the as we begin to take in the horizons of god's glory to greater degree as the law instructs us, instructs us in his holiness and perfection we begin to see a vision for what christ died to sanctify and purchase in our future and we begin to embrace that road with a quickened step, an encouragement in our heart, not a certain legalism that judges our ability as the means of salvation, but instead sees that God is indeed working in me to will and to do of His good pleasure. And by His precepts, by His command and testimony, by His law, I see that I'm moving towards holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit's work inside. Thirdly, David, in his progression, he emphasizes, draws attention to God's glory and the created order of matter. Secondly, he lays out, reminds us of the created order of man. And thirdly, he interjects with a kind of values, compunction. Compunction means an anxiety arising or a presence of mind, a state or frame of mind that places an awareness on us of our guilt. In other words, there's a convicting element here. As we see in verses 10 and 11, more to be desired are they, that is, God's standards of perfection, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, And in keeping them, there is great reward. How do our values line up according to God's standards of value, beauty, and holiness? Are there temporal things that we have indulged, like gold and honey, our sustenance, our wealth, our means of ensuring our own futures, as we mentioned last week, that have eclipsed our love of His truth, His perfection, His attributes, his character, His worth, His works, His record, His salvation, His testimony, the record of His redemptive work from the beginning of Genesis, the close of Revelation, even as we live in this great church age. And as we see this values compunction and the weight that it lays on our shoulders, we might find that there's much to repent of. But if you see that the clarity that Scripture provides, even this morning, that indeed it would be sin to value or to trust in money or to seek the things that perish with the using and sustain only this physical body, only our passing physical taste, things as represented metaphorically by gold and honey. If you see those things, to chase them, become enamored with them, pursue them as if they were the most valuable pursuit and object of our affections is indeed sinful. Let's repent. If we've done that in any way and to any degree, Because when we look a little deeper at the message of Psalm 19, when we see God for who He is, and when we see our purpose for what He has designed, it ought to have a perspectival effect on us and change our value structure and goals entirely. When we see that God's laws are more to be desired than fine gold, I, I liken that analogy, that metaphor, back to rock. Gold is a transcendent standard of value between nations and between cultures, one that we can universally recognize value in gold. It's the standard. But not just that, honey, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Honey speaking to an imminently desirable sustenance, something that gives us uh, a sugar rush, it gives us an appreciation, of taste. It, it quickens the senses right away. There is both... A warning and a reward in the law. It sustains us right now. It gives us something to chew on, to appreciate, to laud in and to rejoice over right now. But it also speaks to a transcendent standard that ties our affections to something that will eclipse us and the sum of what we can do. And verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. There's a warning in the law. That is God's comforting and correcting rod and shepherd's hook and standard to keep us from straying from the path. And there's that standard there, kind of pictured. But also in keeping them, there is great reward. In following God's standards and holding ourselves accountable to the ethical mandates of Scripture, we will begin to embrace a rewarding life. It will receive back into us and into our testimony Wealth that is unmatched by anything the world would ask you to sacrifice their promises for. There is nothing, nothing that compares to the value of following God. And it's been clearly noted that the laws of today are followed not with rewards. Aaron has brought this up several times in our Wednesday discussions. If a cop pulls you over, you know, a typical representative of law and authority in our society today... Have you ever had a police officer pull you over and say, Hey, congratulations, I've noticed you passed me several times in the last week, and you've been going the speed limit. Here's $100. No. Every time the law is asserted on us in a human way, we only receive a penalty if we transgress. Not so with God's standards of righteousness. They are actually tied to rewards and blessings. On Mount Ebal, I believe it was, where there's those two mountains with a valley fixed between, and when there was those formulative constitutional moments for the origin of God's people in societal form in ancient Israel, they were to enter the land and stand half on one side of this great chasm and half on the other, and on one side they were to announce the blessings that would attend obedience, and on the other side they echoed the curses. That would assail them for disobedience. God is still using the same standard of measurement to judge righteousness by. It is so important that we recognize the only means to attain it is the atoning blood of Christ. But recognize, as we take those two together, God's law that Jesus fulfilled, and then the atoning power of the blood of Christ, we can walk in a life and a lifestyle that earns rewards for the kingdom of God, that both takes pleasure in the manifest benefits of God's glory and then testifies to Him, even as the stars do every night. And what does the Bible call us, if not lights? We've sung songs that shine like stars in the heavens. We are called to be like a city on a hill. That won't happen until we increasingly By each day, I hope greater measure evidence of diligence and obedience to God's standards, commands, and the redemptive power of Christ's blood, even as the predictive regularity of the moon revolves around the earth and the earth revolves around the sun. If we begin to follow God and we have faith that He can redeem this kind of testimony in the earth, don't be surprised if nations begin to set their ethical clocks by the standard of God's righteousness visible in His church. Right now, righteousness is defined willy-nilly. We live in a culture that is redefined right and wrong, and they do so with apparent impunity. They've turned over the immortal axioms of truth, and they've replaced them with utter heresy and lies and laws that don't reflect anything of the standard. But, if we can be God's stars shining in the earth, if we can, by increasing measure, reflect His truth, His character, His principles, His commands, and the way we orderly embrace our life. Don't be surprised if this wicked nation who right now, according to Psalm 94.20, frames injustice by statutes, starts to recalibrate its ethical mechanisms against the standard of righteousness finally visible again within His church. This will happen if we embrace the vision of Psalm 19 and repent accordingly. And see, every night before we go to bed and every morning when we rise, a mandate and a hope that we can move in a direction by God's grace and resurrection power that would be as orderly as the stars in the heavens. Fourthly, contrastingly evident sin. David's poetic progression moves from created order of matter to created order of man to values, compunction, and fourthly, contrastingly evident sin. I've already mentioned this in the course of the talk, so in the course of this message, so I won't go into it in too much detail. I'll read two verses here, 11 and 12. I'm sorry, 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. As David considers and meditates on the standard of order in the creation and the standard of order for morality, both in the cosmos and the conscience, he recognizes the value compunction it places on him and then he sees more clearly his own sin. He, In fact, he says it's to infinite degree. Who can discern his errors? It's as if David is saying, my sin against the... Glory of God is so deep, if I could find its end, I could see the end of the universe. I don't even know how many times I have implicitly, explicitly, knowing, or unwittingly, presumptuously violated the glory of God in the way I've lived my life. But you know what? There's still hope. Every one of us could say with David the exact same phrase. Who can discern his error? You, David? Your neighbor? No, never. No one except God Himself. But there is hope. Declare me innocent from even those hidden faults. If man was mandated to come up with, to search his soul with a fine tooth comb and come up with every sin he's ever committed and confess them according to his recollection to a priest, he would still fall infinitely short to chronicle him then. Even if he was as honest as the day is long, he would not have have the ability to unturn every stone that has in some way violated God's character and holiness and glory. But, by the power of God, the same power that spoke this universe into existence, if it can be manifest in our soul in resurrection power, He can declare us, according to the blood of His Son, innocent from hidden faults, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. This is that second category of sins that we knowingly commit. Sins that we purposely commit. They're a little more egregious. They're a little more weighty. But David still knows that he has presumptuously sinned against the Lord and there is still hope. He says, let them not exercise over my soul the same kind of authority you exercise over matter that obeys your will and command. And let them not, even my presumptuous sins, have dominion over me. And then, and only then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. When my soul is submitted to the sovereign hand of God in a redemptive way, then and only then will I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Because surely this world, this universe, this cosmos, and the Every photograph that is shipped back to us via technology from the Hubble telescope declares us sinners and sinners upon sinners with sins such that we can't even fathom the great degree of egregious rebellion and blindness that we have willfully and unwittingly exercised against the Creator of the universe. But there is hope. Lord, I pray that You would exercise the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to raise us from moral death and practice and introduce the miracle of salvation in every soul within this room, if you haven't done it already, that you would move us to confess your lordship, even in the testimony of your universe. David simultaneously, as he contrasting the evidence of God's order in nature to the dysfunction of man's soul, reveals how sinful himself and all of humanity is. As he brings that out, he simultaneously draws in the imperative of saving grace. Declare me. Resurrect me. Let the not have dominion over me. Then and only then will I be blameless. Will I be innocent. And finally, David closes in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My immutable standard of holiness, value, authority, and righteousness, and my redeemer, the one who relationally interacts and gave the blood of his own son on my behalf to reconcile me to his standards of perfection. He is our rock, he is our redeemer. And David closes with a description in a single phrase or in a single sentence of the essence of Orthodox worship. That is worship and glory could take any form thoughts, meditation, songs, obedience, testimony, speaking, preaching, living, acting, doing any of these things that God has called us in an extroverted way to proclaim His glory. David gives us the ethence, essence of orthodoxy in that regard. We are to proclaim Him as rock and to proclaim Him as Redeemer. Now I would submit to you these days that Redeemer is more popular than rock we studied on Wednesday some of the themes of age-old empires. We went through some of the themes, the cultural presuppositions of the Babylonian era, of Assyria and Persia. And we saw that you could quite rightly characterize the worldview of those ancient empires in the words of Jaylee, the presenter, that we were listening to as law with no liberty. There was a sense of a moral imperative, no matter or you know, regardless of how depraved in the old order. But there was very little liberty. There was law, there was standards, there was justice again, however perverted, but no liberty. And then as the modern age dawned upon us and we began to change according to postmodern values, there was another perversion that came to the fore in recent centuries, a sort of license, a sort of liberty with no law. Neither of these is an accurate picture of our God. That is an immutable standard that's not relational. A God that's divorced from the interaction on a soul level with those that he has created. That might be a rock and only a rock, a benchmark, a philosophical, even a scientific necessity for causal relationships in the universe, but it's no redeemer, it's no savior, it's no relational human being. Or a man, or God revealed in the human being of Jesus Christ, it would not conceive of and implement and have the power to enact on behalf of human sin in incarnation. We celebrate at Christmas time. And on the other hand, liberty with no law is not a complete picture of a God either. I've listened to some messages lately that emphasize the love of God, but they do not qualify that that love must account for His justice as well. That is to say, if you think the love of God is promiscuous, that it operates outside His covenant terms, that it overlooks sin without dispensing justice that would satisfy His righteousness, you have a faulty idea of God. You have something else. But we see at the cross these two coming together, justice and mercy. We see the egregious sin that must be punished being taken on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, on the brow and on the body of our incarnate Savior. We also see the grace that He now, because He has atoned for and propitiated the wrath that our sin deserved, we see the grace that He can now freely dispense. He is our rock And He is our Redeemer. He brings liberty and law together. They're brought gloriously, united in the person and calling, in the person of Christ and the calling of the believer in a saving and sanctifying way that evidences the work of the Holy Spirit both at the moment of regeneration and in the testimony of our faithfulness. In closing, we can see in David's words that he had a whole well of meditation from which to draw that would otherwise escape sinful man. He says, by way of prayer request and declaration, I believe at the end of this chapter, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What would be the best and most apparent example of such words and such meditation? We've just gone through a bunch of them. Look up into the heavens. They declare the glory of God. Meditate on the evidence of the finger of God's creative power in the world around. Look at the sky and note how He has carefully ordained and placed and engineered all of the systems in the universe to proclaim, to evidence, and declare, to shout His handiwork from the expanse of space to the inner workings of a single atom. As God gives you, by His grace, day after day and night after night, let each morning be an amazing blessing. You have given me one more day that I I apologize, I repent for taking for granted. The sun has risen, and it speaks to me of the regularity of my God, of the precision of His handiwork, and you see that in creation itself, is an untapped well for many of us of glorious thoughts that we could explore for a life, indeed for an eternity. Let the words of our mouth, let the meditations of our heart, appreciate more the hand of God in His creation than the hand of man in the Antikythera mechanism. The hand of God in the sun rising and the sun setting than the wisdom of man that is vomiting on us through the Internet and every other social media To such high degree that we of all cultures might be guilty of not noticing the sky more than ever before. You travel to a vacation destination like Las Vegas, Sin City. It's as if we've tried to recreate the sky on the ground. And now for all the distractions and lusts and perversions, we fail to see that above us every night is a blanket that either gives us hope, encouragement, joy, and an inrush and sense of worship and glory, or it indicts us and condemns us to hell as reprobate sinners, because there's a God in the heavens that declares sin must be judged. This is the universe that we find ourselves in. And this is the message that it offers to every man. And depending on where we fall in redemption, even this day, the message is either repent or rejoice. Take in the glory of God or bow before His glory. Those are the kind of meditations of heart. Those are the kind of words of our mouth that are acceptable in His sight. He is our rock and He is our Redeemer. And, of course, the second category is easy to see as well. Not only His glory in creation, His handiwork in the universe, but His law, which is perfect, reviving the soul and His testimony which is sure, making wise the simple, and His precepts that are right, rejoicing the heart and the commandment of the Lord that is pure, enlightening the eyes, and finally, the fear of the Lord that is clean and enduring forever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we see in Your Word the standards of beauty far eclipse our preconceived idea of what anything valuable has been or could be for us in our experience, I pray that You would gloriously transcend our sinful tendency and limitations of our mind by speaking by the power of Your Holy Spirit to the inner depths of our soul to make us love Your law, love Your standards of righteousness, rejoice in the work of Your redemption, and to look at Your creation in a whole new light. Now, Lord, I pray that for every adopted son and daughter, that this message, Lord, and the whole of the Word in their study time and their times of meditation as they take in the glory of God, that You would equip them, Lord Jesus, to be a reforming standard in the world around, that the world would begin to set their clocks by the testimony of righteousness and glory that they see reflected in Your people. And for anyone, Lord, within the reach of this message, that finds themselves without excuse now that they see a holy and orderly God has created this universe and they've lived oblivious to it and rebellious to the fact, I pray that they would confess their horrible sin, Lord Jesus, and trust that the power of Jesus Christ and His shed blood can reveal the hidden depths and faults of the heart and can declare them free of the judgment that presumptuous sins deserve And none of that needs to have dominion over them any longer. All because of you. All because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now can indwell your redeemed children. Thank you for these truths, Lord. And as we worship now with this final song, I pray that our hearts would be full of your glory even as the heavens declare it from one expanse this to the east to the other expanse in the west. We love you, Lord. And we thank you that you have given us such a display, such a display of your glorious handiwork, both in Scripture and in creation. Help us to appreciate it to the degree that we are. In Jesus' holy name.